may continue worship the reading from Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves on the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Glad, glad to be here today. Uh, if I've not met you, uh, my name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. And um, you might have noticed, if you uh, have hung out with us a while, uh, that we've changed the order of our service um, to where in between the singing and the preaching is the main scripture that we preach from. And so the scriptures that he just read will be the scriptures that we're digging into today. So I hope you're paying attention. I love how it goes because it kind of makes the service feel a little more seamless in worship, and it helps us understand that the reading of scripture and the preaching of God's word are all worship. Um, not just the singing portion. So we're in an ongoing conversation um, that we've called Formed by the Gospel, um, in which we were kind of just wrestling with this thing that you see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, what you see is the writers of the New Testament preaching the gospel to people who had already heard the gospel. Over and over and over again, you see this. Most of the New Testament is letters. Most of the New Testament is letters to pre-established churches. These are people that have heard the gospel. And what you find is the writers, I mean, all of them on repeat, preaching the gospel to people who had already heard the gospel, right? Almost all the, all the letters, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, to the churches, and it's like a broken record. And they're saying, the guys that are writing the New Testament are saying, hey, Jesus is what all of the prophets and Moses and everyone was speaking of. They were all pointing to Christ. He's the Messiah. And this is how the Messiah does his work. And they're pointing at the gospel. And it's redundant. And it's like they just never seem to get over it. It seems that in their minds, what Jesus had done on the cross had an inescapable centrality to what it meant to be a Christian. So they just never shut up about it. And so we've just been saying, why? Why are they continually raising this flag up? And the answer we've been getting at is because some of us think the gospel is the thing that gets you in the door, right? You go to a, a, a tent revival meeting and the guy you know, preaches the gospel and you have an, a, an experience and that gets you in the door. And then you go on to other things, but that's not apparently what the New Testament writers seem to think. 
They seemed to think that the gospel was not only the entryway to Christianity, but it was the means by which you walk the path of Christianity. It's not just the door. It's something that's continually meant to form who you are, the kind of person you are, right? And what we said in week one is the message of the gospel, the sweeping claims of the gospel are so confounding, they're so unintuitive and confrontational as to how we think the world works. Unless our hearts are continually reminded of its truth, we drift into other ideas of how to accomplish spirituality, how to make ourselves fully alive. Or you could say it this way, the work of Christ is so blindingly bright in glory, in power, in strength, in beauty that those accustomed to dwelling in darkness can't handle it. It is too bright for their eyes. So they tweak it. They tone it down. They dampen it, right? And strong arm it into a package that can coexist with their darkness. And some things Jesus said, some things that Jesus said, you're like, yeah, that's awesome. Stick it to the man. And other things he said were like, well, he, nah, <laughs> he didn't mean that, right? And you And when you do this, when the brightness of the gospel is so unadulteratedly bright, is that a right word? I don't know if it's the right word. I'm I'm breaking the human language to try to communicate right now. When the gospel is so bright that we tone it down, you put the Bible on the cutting table and you cut out the bits you don't like. And then you keep the bits that fit in with your modern framework of how the world works. And effectually, you take away its teeth. Mm -hmm. And the gospel found in scripture turns out to us how we understand it, the way we've cut it up, it to be a false gospel. We, it's not the right gospel. It's a distorted gospel. It's a, it's a different gospel that many Christians think is the thing. And it's not, even in the New Testament, guys. Even in the New Testament, we talked about this. You see false gospels stirring up trouble in the New Testament. Read Galatians, right? And listen, Galatians, not even 40 to 60 years after Christianity is born, they were already coming up with counterfeit gospels, right? Uh, what the gospel really is and what the gospel really does. And here we are, some, I mean, read Galatians, y'all. It's going to be, he, he literally says, you're going with a different gospel. He calls it a distortion of the gospel. And here we are some 2,000 odd years later, and we'd be foolish not to realize that there are plenty of false gospels today. So week one, we just dug into that, right? We kind of pondered how it's totally possible that you float along in Southern Belt, Bible, Christianity, subculture, right? You learn the language, you learn how to fit into religious circles and never really hear the gospel. Never really meet the man himself, right? It's like some of us just working with Polaroids of Jesus. You never met the man himself, right? And what's on offer of the New Testament is the living man, not a Polaroid of him. Some of them think that's all we get. We just get a polar. No, he's alive, bro. Like, and his spirit is himself in our presence. That's what the spirit of Christ is what it's called, the Holy Spirit. You are to experience a living person if you're to be a Christian, not a Polaroid of a person, all right? And we can drift along in Christian experience and, and, and listen to have church services and listen to great sermons, but never personally experience the power of Jesus in our lives. T- Second Timothy calls it, you have a form of godliness, but you denied its power. I mean, think of the difference between a Polaroid and a person. 
flat, 2D, unimpressive, frozen in time and space. I just described how many of you think of Jesus. He's flat, uninspiring, and he's frozen in time and space. You are working with the Polaroid. He is alive. He speaks. He does things. And if you're confused by that, welcome to Christianity. It's confounding. It's confusing. And yet his presence is with us. All right, so let's move on. Uh, Last word about that. Polaroid doesn't rescue your heart from sin. Jesus does that, right? So we have to be willing to ask ourselves, guys, have I experienced the man himself or have I just experienced others talking about him? Have I heard the gospel that we find in scripture or have I heard some watered down version that allows me to maintain control over my life? So today, just like then, there are false gospels, there are distortions of the gospels. We talked about them week one, right? Gospels without power, versions of the gospel that don't require anything else, gospels that align with, that we've tweaked to align with our own selfishness, right? And some of us have an understanding of the gospel that doesn't confront your sin, right? And therefore doesn't offer you any real joy. Paul would say, you've missed it. In Galatians 1, he says, who's bewitched you? So some of the false gospels that we pointed out, therapeutic moralistic deism, say that five times fast. You got to go back to week one uh, to hear about that. Another false gospel we pointed out uh, was a religion for death. Some people have a gospel that just kicks in when you die. Check fire, it's like car insurance, but you have, a, like, you have great car insurance, you know, but you don't have a car that runs. <laughs> There's many people's versions of the gospel, right? And, and what I want to remind you of before we get into this Revelations text, before we get into what we're talking about, um, the gospel means, the, the word gospel simply means news. News, news, read all about it. That's something that has happened. News, that's what the gospel means. The gospel is essentially a story. Something that has happened. It's a narrative. And the claim is that it is the story, the one true story of all creation and God's ultimate plan to fix what is broken in the world, right? So we've just been going through the gospel, which we said does not start with sin. The gospel doesn't start with sin. It starts with good creation, then the fall, then last week redemption, which now brings us to where the story claims to be going, okay? The ending of the story the gospel claims is the restoration of all things. This, these four truths make up the narrative arc of the gospel, of the Bible, of the cosmos, all right? The good creation, the fall, redemption, and then lastly, the restoration of all things. So today is the restoration of all things. That's why we read Revelations at, uh, after the singing and Isaiah, the prophecy in Isaiah before the singing, right? So first, what is it? And then second, Uh, What does it mean? So that's our blueprint for today. What is the restoration of all things? Number two, what does it mean? So first, what is it? So if you were with us when we read Revelations 21 and 22 after the singing, what may have struck you, uh, if you were with us in the beginning, uh, is a clear overlapping of Revelation 21 and 22 with Genesis 1 through 3. Anyone catch that? The imagery... And the language is unmistakably Genesis 1 through 3, language. And by doing a little bit of comparing and contrasting, I think we can get a glimpse at what the restoration of all things is. So the first observation might be, if you notice the language, which we read at the beginning, right? 
It's almost, it's, so this totally overlapping, but it's almost as if the whole drama, right, all of history, the cross, all the suffering in the world, everything, was simply to get us back to the beginning of the story, what we lost in the Garden of Eden. And according to the New Testament, it's, it's worth it all. So one of the first things that might cue you in to some of the overlaps of Revelation uh, 21 and 22 in Genesis 1 through 3 is a tree. Did you catch that? There's a tree in Revelation 22. The last time you saw that tree, guess where it was? Genesis 2. But which tree is it? It's the tree of life. That's what we find, right? Smack in the middle of the city, of, the, of when Jesus comes back, right? at the very, very end of the story, the tree of life is there. The tree of life, not only is it there, it's totally open and accessible. It's eternally bearing fruit for what? The healing of the nations, right? The same tree, y'all, that humanity was locked out of after the fall, now in the middle of the street of the city, open and accessible. Now, all of humanity has access to the tree. Why? Because the dividing wall, the dividing hostile wall between God and man has been removed. How? The cross, right? But there was another tree in Genesis 2. What was that tree? Anyone? Right. Was that in Revelation 22? It wasn't there. No. It was missing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not there. Why? Well, Pandora's box has been opened. There's no going back to not knowing, y'all. Therefore, what do the saints have now that Adam and Eve didn't have before the fall? Well, we have all of the experience and history of man through the ages. War, violence, hate, Injustice, racism, evil, darkness, and the brokenness of humanity is fixed in our memory. We, there's, there's no getting it out. We've experienced it. We know what happens when man defines good and evil outside of God, don't we? We've seen the profound damage uh, that is caused, the heartbreak, the isolation, the rage, when we define for ourselves what is right, what is right and what is wrong. We've lived that horror, <laughs> All of us have. Not only have we been impacted by others' peoples, but we've contributed to the mess ourselves, right? And now, what is God doing here at the culmination of all things? Well, because of what Christ has done, of no credit to us, he makes a way back to fullness of life. The tree of life, middle of the city. No angel guarding it anymore. It's back to Eden, but it's back with a lived experience of suffering and death and sin, Right? Not only experiencing it, the collateral damage of sin, but contributing to the brokenness of our own humanity and creation, right? Ourselves, which begs the question, if you're with me right now, a huge question we posed a couple weeks ago. If we ourselves have taken part in cosmic treason against the creator by sinning, right? If we ourselves have contributed to the mess, how can God create a paradise of perfect sinlessness and let us in. <laughs> you ever wonder that? Yeah, yeah. How can, how can God destroy evil without destroying you? Hmm? How can imperfection enter perfection without knocking the whole thing out of whack again? It's like if you find the perfect church, don't go to it because you screw it up. You know, you know that one, <laughs> right? How can the likes of us, me and you, live in perfection? with our raging insecurities and our selfishness and our tendency to sin. Well, this is exactly where it becomes clear that we've underestimated not only the goodness of God, but the power of the cross. 
Apparently, the depth of the work of the shed blood of Christ is so powerfully transforming that it can take someone like me and you and turn us into radiant eternal beings who can live and thrive in the unmitigated glory of Christ. That's bizarre. Moses couldn't look at his face and die and live, right? No one looks at God and lives. Moses saw the back of him turn into a human nightlight, right? And here, at the restoration of all things, through Christ's atoning work, me and you will see his face. That's what it says. We'll see his face. Hmm? And all of the knowledge of the suffering of death and sin, the consequences that we've had to endure, right? All of it will now compile and turn us into all the more grateful, worshiping subjects of the king. Because we know what it's like. We know what it's like when people do their own things. See, when you know that you don't deserve something, it changes how you enjoy it, doesn't it? That's the difference. Hmm? One of, maybe, the differences. So what else are we told? Well, there's no more night. There's no more sun, actually. <laughs> if you read it with us at the beginning, right? The Lord God will be their light. So Judas is one. God speaks into darkness and creates light to rule over the night and day. And here... There is no night. There's no darkness at all. The Bible starts with darkness and ends with light. Hmm? No need for the sun because God himself is their sun. The sun, the source of all life, the source of all life that we know and, and appreciate, right? That sun, gone. We don't need it anymore. Now we have the source behind the source. That's what Revelation says, right? And this is a big deal because the night is gone. That's what it said. The source of darkness is no more. Why? Because of immediacy with God. All darkness is vanquished. His creative goodness chases it away once and for all. It's no coincidence, y'all, that in all of literature, almost across all of time, darkness is almost always symbolizes wrong. Darkness almost always symbolizes suffering in the world, right? We have the dark night of the soul, right? Darkness is always used to communicate sorrow and suffering. It represents ignorance. Darkness represents blindness. It represents injustice and pain and death and mourning and tears. And we see in Revelation 21, it's exactly all those things that are vanquished. Death itself, it says. The greatest foe of humanity, gone. We try to avoid death. We try to cheat it, right? We employ plastic surgeons to convince ourselves we're not gonna one day die, right? Maintain the illusion of eternal youth. We distract ourselves from death until it becomes unavoidable, right? And here, at the restoration of all things, death dies. It's no more. Death is destroyed. Suffering is subjugated. Injustice eradicated. Pain is put down. And tears are triumphed over. This is the claim of the gospel. That Christ dealt with once and for all death and darkness. Gets me. Okay. And that through his sacrifice, he made a way for access, even for those who had rebelled against him, back into his goodness. Right? It's back to Eden. Now, what else is in contrast with Eden? Well, in Eden, it's a garden. What do we have in Revelation? A city. Correct. Eden was two people. What do we have in Revelation? Nations. Very good. You guys were, mm, you're paying attention, right? Okay. 
Oh, is it on the screen? Oh, man. I thought y'all were paying attention, man. So it's all the things we know. You still did great. You impressed me. It's all the things we know. Cities and nations. Remade. Cities and nations. Things we know. Remade and wrapped up in Jesus' work of making all things new. Right? In Genesis 1, we're told to rule and reign for God. And what do we do? Well, we rule and reign for ourselves. And in Revelation 21, what does it say? They will rule and reign forever. We're doing what God initially told us to do now in his light and in his way. Right? In Genesis 3, curse laid on all creation. Gen Revelation 22, there will no longer be a curse. It's almost an exact overlay. And do you see what's happening? It's not just an overlay. It's a reversal. It's, it's uh, inverting all the consequences of sin and rebellion, right? It's almost as if all of the horrors and death of pain and sin are too weak to survive under the power and goodness of God in the end. In the end, the greater will overcome the lesser. Light will overcome the darkness. Forgiveness overcome bitterness. Love overcome hate. And how does it happen? by man coming together and thinking positive thoughts? No. Read the rest of Revelation if you have the stomach. It's pretty intense, right? And at the center of the whole book is Christ, the lamb that was slain. I grew up saying Revelations. Anyone else? Revelations? Yeah, Revelations. Uh, look at your Bible. It doesn't have an S on it. It's, it's Revelation, the Revelation. And who is the Revelation? Jesus. Jesus, that he was the worthy one, right? So he's the one that reverses the curse of sin, right? And it's a reversal, not just in our hearts, not just of sorrow and, and death and suffering, but even the earth, right? Last week, Duck, Duck said, even the dirt knows something's wrong. So when Christ returns in Psalm 96, shout out Gary, he tells, uh, it, tells it says that the earth itself will rejoice. The sea will resound with praise. It says the fields will celebrate and the trees will shout for joy before the Lord for he's coming to judge the earth. All of creation, y'all, not just us, but the land itself will be set right again. Or as Tim Keller says, which he stole from Tolkien, everything sad will be made untrue. This is what the gospel claims to achieve for us. It's where the story ends for those who belong to Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean? What does this do to us, right? Or you could ask it this way. How does this form the way we live? Well, how do you live when you know that evil has a shelf life? What happens mentally if you know that suffering and pain and sorrow and violence and hate in the end cannot win, will not win, right? That those things are only short-lived spurts of arrogant, prideful, raging men who will in the end not be allowed to continue exploiting and committing acts of violence and hate. Doesn't it put suffering in a new perspective? Maybe, maybe a little closer to Paul's perspective in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. How glorious must it be to outweigh and not even be worth comparing to our suffering in this life? Some of us have suffered. Think of the suffering of the world, not just your suffering. He's saying all of it. Think of it all. 
Auschwitz. <laughs> Think of it all. All of the suffering of the world. Sufferings that many of us have no clue about. Not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. What does that do to how we endure suffering? Right? Right? Not even worth. What about personally? Okay? How do you live when you know that your failure is not final? How do you live when you know that your sins will not have the final say over your existence? Anyone? Right? <laughs> how do we, how do we, oh, we're getting in it now, right? How do we live, right, when we believe that my own sin and failures cannot and will not in the end define me? What does that do to us? I don't know about you, but it makes me want to shout and yell just like, oh, pray, just fall down at his feet and worship, right? It makes me want to get rowdy and kick the devil in the mouth. That's what it makes me want to do, right? Cause all the trouble I can for the devil while I'm here because I know how the story ends and it does not end well for him, right? When we consider these things, it should strengthen our weak knees and straighten our bent over back, right? Fill us with boldness and grace and power because look at me, that's how hope works. That's how hope works. What does someone mean when they say, brother, sister, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, what does it mean? What are they trying to say? Look at me. They're trying to say, the pain won't last. That's what they're trying to say. The pain won't last. It can't. It's not strong enough to compete with the goodness of God, right? Some of us, yeah, in just painful seasons of our life right now, right? I mean, some of us from our own stupidity, right? And we're in these painful seasons. Look at me. The pain won't last, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through, but God wants to say to your heart right now, the pain won't last. It is not strong enough to endure. Your sin is not great enough to mitigate the power of the cross. And it cannot, will not, cannot in the end define who you are if you belong to Christ, Amen. right? God is saying this suffering that we all know has a shelf life. There is a light at the end of the darkness. And he's saying, I can, I have, and I will overcome all of the pain and sorrow that you've had to endure because of sin. And on that day, it won't feel like you're stumbling through the desert. On that day, you won't feel exhausted and hurt and utterly defeated. On that day, all those things that paralyzed you with fear will be no more. On that day, the wicked men who exploited and abused will exploit and abuse no more. All evil all injustice will cease. That's how the story ends. How? By putting it on his son. By placing all the sin and all the evil on his son. How? How do we get to enjoy what's been described? It's by God crushing his son, destroying him in our place. How do we get to enter when we know that our own sinfulness was part of the problem? Well, it's because he put our sinfulness on his son and pressed down on him and destroyed him, right? Tim Keller says, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And the invitation of the gospel is to let Jesus take every part of you that can't endure heaven. Because in heaven, there is no lust, there's no gossip, there's no hate, no unforgiveness, there's no violence. And if in the end you cling to selfishness and lust and violence, then you won't get to enter paradise. 
You can't. The very nature of paradise forbids it. But if you will begin to trust what Jesus claimed he did on the cross, let me say something supernatural begins to happen inside you right now. You see, all of those things you've read about today, the peace represented in the lying lion lying down with the lamb, the pushing back of darkness by God's light, immediacy with God, all the things you've read about, sin being conquered by God's goodness, the restoration and new creation, all of that will begin to manifest itself in your heart here and now when you say yes to Jesus. You don't have to wait for death. Praise his name. Because when Jesus came, Almost all his parables were explaining one thing, the kingdom of God. And that's what we've been reading about. We've been reading about the culmination of the kingdom of God. And his message was that in him, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what, that was his message. In fact, God says, let me give you a taste of that kingdom right now. It's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called a deposit of what's to come. Do you know that? And all of those things we spoke of are on the table fully? No, but in part. Men still hate, right? Men still kill and abuse and exploit on this side of heaven. But Paul is saying, when he says the kingdom of God is within you, he's not saying, hey, just think, just frame, just you know, change how you think about things. He's, he's not saying that. He's saying, if you will allow God, he will come into you right now and begin to re order the interior of your life in accordance with new creation. That's the invitation. To begin the process now of reordering and remaking things in your own heart that align with heaven, with peace, with love, winning, with darkness being vanquished, right? He comes into your darkness now and speaks peace to the chaos. He flushes out the darkness now in your heart, if you will let him, right? Fully? No, not the side of heaven. But apparently enough for scripture to say, if, any was in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come already. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the gospel. And to the degree of which you are willing to submit your little story into his larger story is the degree which you will be able to walk in the claims of the gospel. Let me end with a reading from Revelations 5 and 21. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain 
with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might and power forever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. The word of the Lord. Amen. Stand with me.